0: Hey folks, Brian here. I want to thank each and every one of you who has liked, reviewed, rated, and subscribed to Confessions of an Arcade Addict and telling your friends and everything like that. Please keep it going. I just recently went up over 500 likes on Facebook and I'm really, really grateful to each and every one of you. Now on with the show. this is episode number 33 of the Confessions of an Arcade Addict podcast. Not too much going on when last we left off, uh, when I recorded episode 32. Um, Unfortunately, the state of Michigan has gone back into uh, shutdown mode uh, because of the outbreak of new cases of COVID, so I believe arcades are closed for now. Um, I did run by Pinball Pete's a couple of weeks ago, or not a couple of weeks I think it was like last week as a matter of fact, to just check to see if they were open and they were shut down, so I was like, uh, this is a bummer. So, yeah, once again, I have to do most of my gaming and get my gaming fix at home. Uh, let's see, I've been playing Path of Exile, I've been playing, um, uh, Battletech, of course. And just having fun, you know, killing things and blowing things up, you know, stressfully, if you understand. Um, let's see, aside from that, just sort of working and getting through which is going to be a rather crazy time of year. How um, I should say Thanksgiving has just come and gone. Um, you know, a quiet time at home with my uh, girlfriend and my son, and we, you know, stayed in, of course, and you know, we cooked uh, Thanksgiving dinner, and, you know, we had a pretty decent time. Food came out good, and, you know, it's just kind of fun just kind of chilling out at home with my son and his mother. So, that's pretty much what I've been doing. Uh, let's see, I have did a check-through of messages and emails on the various outlets for this show, and nothing's out there. So, once again... I'm getting a little tired of repeating myself, guys. You know, I'm sure there's some people out there with some questions. But, you know, if you have a question about anything I've said, about anything that I've covered in the previous 32 episodes, um, or anything that I'm going to cover in this episode, and looking at the list of topics that I have going on, there are going to be certain things coming up there should raise questions and if you have any by all means contact me arcadeaddictbryan at gmail.com also we have a phone number for voicemails that number is 734-743-2433 also we have a social media up and running of course uh, we are on or I am this is a one-man operation right now <laughs> um, well, I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr. On Facebook, all you have to do is search for Confessions of an Arcade Addict. It'll take you right to the page. Um, if you want to get a hold of me on Twitter, you can message me uh, at uh, arcadeaddict_b. underscore B. Instagram, it's at arcadeaddictbrian. And Tumblr is tumblr.com slash blog slash Confessions of an Arcade Addict. So there are multiple ways of getting hold of the show, as always, so if you've got anything to say, as long as you're nice and what you have to say is constructive, say what you will, and we'll talk about it. Okay, so without any further ado, let's get on with the show. I've got quite a bit to talk about here, so let's just get right into it. Are you experienced? I'm too old for this. I in front seats like a teenager. Oh, I think I'm getting too old for this stuff. I'm getting too old for this. Listen, you was born too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. I'm getting too old for this. Lying red arsed in the heather chasing other men's cattle. I'm getting too old for this sort of thing. Maybe we are getting too old for this. What do you think, huh? I'm not too old for this shit. I'm not too old for this You will admit it. We're not too old for this shit. We're not too old for this, like this shit. Yeah. We're not too old for I'm this like you believe We're not too old for this shit. not too old for this I'm not going to buy a hemorrhoid yeah. We're not too old for this shit. Are you experienced? WWF Superstars. Oh, man, this game. This is um, by... If I had to rank my top ten of favorite professional wrestling games, this game is probably top five, maybe even top three. You know, definitely top five. But um, this was a wonderful game, it, and uh, let me get you let me get some information going here from Wikipedia, of course. Okay, WWF Superstars is an arcade game man- manufactured by Technos Japan and released in 1989. It is the first WWF arcade game to be released. A series of unrelated games with the same title were released by LGM for the original Game Boy. Technos followed the game with the release of WrestleFest in 1991, which we will get to. <laughs> uh, make no mistake about that, but let's focus on this one. Uh, the game features some of the signature moves and trademark mannerisms of the wrestlers in the game. There are also cut scenes featuring Ted DiBiase, Andre the Giant, and Virgil. Mean Gene Okerlund and Miss Elizabeth make appearances as well. Before the first match, the player's chosen team enters the arena via the ring cart, seen at WrestleManias 3 and 6. Players select two wrestlers to form a tag team. The playable wrestlers are Hulk Hogan, Macho Man Randy Savage, The Ultimate Warrior, Big Boss Man, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, and The Honky Tonk Man. Up to two players can play at once. The players take their team through a series of matches with other tag teams in New York City and then Tokyo. The game features a basic grappling and attack system. From a grapple, the player can either toss the opponent, throw them into the ropes, or go into a headlock from which two character specific grapple moves can be performed. Each wrestler also possesses standing strikes, running attacks, running counterattacks, ground attacks, and moves from the top turnbuckle. A referee is present in the ring, but cannot be attacked or otherwise affected by the wrestlers. It is also possible to brawl outside the ring, provided the players re-enter before a count of 20. There, a table can be picked up and swung at opponents. If both wrestlers go outside the ring at once, their tag team partners automatically jump out to join the fight. Occasionally, one of these partners will wander off-screen and return wielding a folding chair. (laughs) Neither the chair nor table can be taken inside the ring. After three matches are won, players get to challenge the Mega Bucks, which is a tag team of the Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase and Andre the Giant, for the final round. Most gravel moves do not work against Andre because of his immense size. The Mega Bucks are not selectable characters; however, there are cheats for MAME that allow them to be used t- together or separately. The drawback being that if DiBiase or Andre get a submission victory, the game will think that the player lost. Also, there can be sometimes graphical errors which can make the in ring opponent disappear. That is true because I actually used those. <laughs> it, was, it was fun. But yeah, you had to, you couldn't use your um, The Million Dollar Dream for Ted DiBiase, or you couldn't use Andrea Giant's uh, Backbreaker uh, because, yeah, that's exactly what would happen. To continue. If the player wins the match, a newspaper headline heralding the player's tag team as champions is shown. The player is then taking through another series of three matches, one of which will feature DiBiase in uh, Tokyo and a final match against DiBiase and Andre before the game ends. In Japan, Game Machine listed WWF superstars in their November 1st, 1989 issue as being the third most successful table arcade unit of the year. Yeah. So let's see, my experiences with it, okay. Uh, when this game came out in 1989, I could not have been happier. I was a huge wrestling fan throughout the 80s and games like Tag Team Wrestling, Matt Mania, Mania Challenge, and yes, even the quarter-eating button masher, the main event, fueled my desire to get into the ring and engage another being in the game of human chess, as Gordon Soli once called the sport of professional wrestling. Spanky's got this game, and I was all about it. My favorite tag team was the Ultimate Warrior and Macho Man Randy Savage. I remember uh, one day actually beating Andre the Giant and the Million Dollar Man uh, for the tag titles on one quarter, and I did it with style by hitting Andre with Macho Man's patented flying elbow drop from the top turnbuckle and pinning him. I then promptly got beat by the next team, but I didn't care. (laughs) I could never top that match if I played the game for 100 years. Uh, Technos makes fantastic wrestling games, and this is one of their best ones without a doubt. The only one that's probably better is its sequel, WWF WrestleFest, which we will get to. Okay, so with the information out of the way, let's pivot right to time for some strategy. Time for some strategy. Okay, the trick to beating this game is to keep your opponent staggered and dizzy and inflicting enough damage to keep them down for the three count, then using your partner to keep the opposition's partner from breaking up the pinfall attempt. Um, let's use the Ultimate Warrior as an example. Um, when you start the match, you almost always get the first move in, so the best thing to do is hit your opponent with an Atomic Drop, which is, let's see... You get the initiative. You tap the punch button once to uh, get the headlock, and then you then you hit the kick button, which I think turns him into the turns the opponent into giving the atomic drop that knocks them down, and then they end up getting up. Again, they're dizzy. Uh, from there, you use regular body slams and get him over towards your corner. Uh, Then hit another atomic drop on him to dizzy him again. Uh, From there, use a running clothesline. Then if you can pick him up off the mat without him actually reversing your uh, grapple attempt, you hit him with the press slam, then go for the pin. From the moment your wrestler goes to pin the opponent, uh, you get control of your partner. Um, You use him to run across the ring. Um and hit the opponent's partner with a running attack of some kind to knock him down while the pin is taking place it's a three count but it's more like five seconds instead of three Uh, the trick is not to use too many moves in a row because at some point the the opponent will start reversing your grapples and start hitting you with multiple moves which will drain your health meter really fast Um, If you have to, tag your partner in, but sometimes even that won't save you from taking damage, and this is where the game starts to eat your quarters or tokens. Um, As you progress in the game, the matches get tougher, so you have to figure out uh, if you've inflicted enough damage to pin your opponent, which, especially when you get through the second uh, set of matches uh, from Tokyo, that's not easy to do. Not even close. So yeah, it takes a lot of practice and uh, you know just getting you know getting good instincts for the game and going from there. Uh, let's see, as far as DiBiase and Andre are concerned, uh, they're tough to beat, and that's no hyperbole at all. They are really tough to defeat. Uh, DiBiase is a ring technician, and his moves are almost almost always right on point. From his running drop kick to his running knee strike, to his clothesline, to his power slam, which is an automatic pin attempt by the way, uh, to his belly to belly suplex, and his regular suplex and his back suplex, to the Million Dollar Man Dream, or excuse me, the Million Dollar Dream Sleeper Hold, which is his finisher. And Andre is just a mountain of a man at seven foot five, and he's really tough to hurt. Only the most basic of moves will damage him, and you have to stick and move at first to wear him down. Uh, if you're able to get grapples on him, the only thing you can do is whip him into the ropes and either hit him with a back body drop or a drop kick. And you have to keep doing this basic stuff over and over again. Uh, you, you're trying basically to wear him down. When you start to wear him down, um, the indicator is is that you, you can go for body slams. When, you get, when you're actually able to body slam Andre the Giant, that's when you know you've got him close to being beat. Um, although, if he gets his hands on you, you might as well line up another uh, token or a quarter because all his moves inflict a lot of damage and you can't take very many of them. Um, he can just grind you down with open hand slaps and chops, uh, he can hit you with his own knee strikes to knock you down, where then he will try to sit on you and pin you, or he can use an over-the-shoulder backbreaker hold to submit you. Um, if you do inflict enough damage on Andre, Andre, like I said, you get the ability to body slam him, and that's the sign where he's close to being beaten. Um basically what I do in that situation if I'm able to do it I just basically pick him up and body slam him as much as possible and then uh you might want to try and hit him with a move off of the top rope because you're not going to get your finishing moves on him that's the that's the difficult part about being Andre it's sort of like now that I think about it it's more it's almost like Uh, tag team wrestling in that you had one opponent that you could use all your moves on but then you had another uh opponent that you could only use the more basic stuff and you had to wear him down because he was so big but that's pretty much it um the easiest and i put that word in quotation marks the easiest way to win is to wear down debiase it's not easy at all, and if you inflict too much damage on him too quickly, he will go for the tag immediately. Um, do your best to stop him, even though it's kind of hard to do, too. Uh, you try to cut the ring off from Andre. By What that means is that you want to try to get him on your side of the ring, where your partner is, where he has to go a long way across the ring to reach Andre, and most of the time, you'll be in the way. And you just use frequent tags and hit him with dizzy moves and follow up with running attacks when he's dizzy and go for pinning attempts. That's the only way to really get him. Um, I've only had the quote-unquote perfect match against this team once where I wore Dibiase down enough to pin him without having to use another credit to refill my team's health meters. I mean, I love this game. It's a lot of fun, but it is sneaky tough. (laughs) And that's just how I feel about it. And that is WWF Superstars in a Nutshell um, So yeah, if you ever played this game And you've got any sort of uh, techniques or you know methods to beat this game By all means, get a hold of me ArcadeAddictBrian at gmail.com Okay, let's move on to Arcade Review Arcade review, at Fashion Square Mall, Orlando, Florida. Um, like I said, this is one of the arcades that I used to frequent a lot with my roommate back in the day, and it took a lot of uh, reminiscing and so forth. And quite honestly, I probably should have probably should have uh, messaged my roommate and you know asked her about uh, you know Fashion Square Mall and what she remembers of it and stuff like that, but. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll actually get her as a guest on the show one day. Eh, I'll, I'll message her and I'll find out, but we'll table that for now. Okay. Uh, as with all arcade reviews, there's five criteria. Location, selection, ambiance, functionality, and value. Uh, location is fairly self-explanatory. Where is it? Is it easy to get to? Um, you know, is it, you know, centrally located? Is it out in the sticks somewhere? Um, usually, I you know, is there ample parking at the place and things like that. Um, usually, I will put high marks on a place that's easy to get to, plenty of parking, you know, and you know, just things like that. Um, okay, selection very easy, easy. You know, how many games do they have? Do you have really good variety? Do they have a good cross section of games? Things like that. Uh, let's see. Um, Ambiance uh let's see are there is there like posters and art or back glasses you know adorning the walls of the place um do they have um do they have music coming in through you know the pa speakers or whatever you know um do these things add to the experience of you know the the arcade in question um is the staff friendly and helpful You know, or do they not care about what goes on? You know, things like that. Uh, Functionality, self-explanatory. How do the machines look? Do they work well? Um, If a machine goes down, does it take a while to get it fixed? Or do they handle it in short order? Things like that. And values, pretty pretty straightforward. Uh, Do they run the place on quarters? Do they use tokens? Uh, Do they use the free play option? Things like that. Um and you add all that up and average it out by five and you come up with a final score. Uh, Each uh, criteria is rated from one to ten with half points coming into play. Okay, so let's get right on to it. Uh, Let's see location, I gave this 8.0. The Fashion Square Mall was easy to get to. It was on State Road 50 uh, also called Colonial Drive. Uh, which is and about 2 miles west of state road 436 which were the two ma- or two of the major um thoroughfares going through town um along with awesome, uh excuse me uh orange blossom trail um at least two bus lines went to the mall i think it was like three or four bus lines if i remember correctly but as always this is like what almost 20 years ago so my memory is a little hazy Um, And it was close to downtown Orlando Orlando as well. So that gives it extra points as as well. I think 8.0 is fair. Uh, Selection, 7.5. The arcade wasn't very big in size, but they made use of every square foot of that place, and that's the truth. I think they had maybe about... I think the most they ever had was about oh, I want to say between 30 and 40 machines. Um, you know, they had uh, video games of the day. They had, you know, some of the classics. They also had, um, I think, like, uh, six or eight or ten pinball machines included in that. And so that makes for a pretty decent cross-section. Um, the best game they ever had, in my opinion, was the uh, Super Street Fighter Two Tournament Edition, which was this big, huge a uh, machine which had 1 2 3 4 5 6 it had 16 i think it was either yeah it was 16 16 um control sets uh, so basically you could have up to 8 players or excuse me up to 16 players play in a street fighter 2 tournament style uh battle which was a whole lot of fun You know, I just love... I love that game to death. It was one of the best ideas Capcom ever came up with. But, yeah, Selection 7.5. Ambiance is a 6. For what I remember, they didn't have a lot of artwork on the the walls, but they had some, just not a lot. You know, it was as most uh, non-franchise arcades were in, like, the 80s and 90s... Um, you know, they were more about the, you know, more about business. Although this one at least made a small attempt at some decent, uh, you know, it's something to look at aside from the game machines. The staff was okay. You know, they weren't like, you know, out of their way helpful or anything like that. But, you know, they did their jobs pretty well. And, you know, they kept a really good, uh, uh, you know, pretty, a pretty good view on the place, you know. And they had no problem calling security if somebody was, you know, out of line. So, you know, I'll give it a six. Uh, functionality, 7.5. Uh, the machines worked well, and if one went down, it got fixed in a decent amount of time, If you know, from that. I think, I'm not 100% sure, but they must have had an, uh, an agreement with somebody who was really good at fixing electronics because, yeah, if a machine went down, unless it was a specialized machine like a laser disc machine or something like that, it got fixed pretty quickly. Uh, and value, I give a 5. Uh, the arcade ran on quarters, so it, that's pretty much average marks. Uh, so you add all that together and average it out, and you get a total score of 6.8. Uh, as I said in the rundown, For this place, you know, this one and it's sister arcade at the Florida Mall were fairly important in the arcade runs that my roommate and I used to go on at least twice a week back in the 90s. Um, It was a decent place, small in size, but big in stature, as they had games for every taste. Uh, Like I also said, the place closed down in 1996. It came back for a cup of coffee in 1997 before it closed down for good in 1998. It was a shame because... Uh, that the, I would say probably the beginning of 1998 was the dark times, so to speak, because the arcades in Orlando were starting to shut down all over town. Um, the, the, uh, fun machine closed down, um, these places shut down. I mean, the only arcades that I really knew of that were still around, uh, when I left Orlando in 2002 was, um this one place in on uh, international drive I can't remember the name of it. I only went there once and um, the game room at the McDonald's on International drive you know which was a full-blown McDonald's with a play place but it also had a game room so yeah, those are the only places that you know were still in existence when I left to my knowledge. okay um, so yeah that's the fascist square arcade you have any uh thoughts or questions did you live in orlando at that time did you used to go to this arcade uh let me know what you thought of it arcadeaddictbrian at gmail.com okay and let's go on to the final segment of this show which is home systems there's no place like home Shall we play a game? Love to. Screw you guys. I'm, again. I'm going home. Okay, home systems. The PlayStation 2. <laughs> oh yeah, I got some stuff to say about this this system for sure. And there's a lot in its history, just like its predecessor, the PlayStation One. So let's get right on to it. Uh, this is uh, the information, of course, is from Wikipedia again. The PlayStation 2, also known as the PS2, is a home video game console developed and marketed by Sony Computer Entertainment. It was first released in Japan on March 4th of 2000, in North America on October 26th of 2000, in Europe on November 24th of 2000, and in Australia on November on the same date, as a matter of fact. It is the successor to the original PlayStation, as well as the second installment of the PlayStation console lineup. As a sixth-generation console, it competed with Sega's Dreamcast, Nintendo's GameCube, and Microsoft's original Xbox. Announced in 1999, the PS2 offered backwards compatibility for its predecessor DualShock controller as well as its games. The PS2 is the best-selling video game console of all time, having sold over 155 million units worldwide. Over 3,800 game titles have been released for the PS2, with over 1.5 billion copies sold. Sony later manufactured several smaller, lighter revisions of the console, known as slimline models, in 2004. Even with the release of its successor, the PlayStation 3, the PS2 remained popular well into the 7th generation and continued to be produced until 2013, when Sony finally announced that it had been discontinued after over 12 years of production, one of the longest lifespans of a video game console. Despite the announcement, new games for the console continued to be produced until the end of 2013, including Final Fantasy XI, Seekers of Adullin for Japan, FIFA 13 for North America, and Pro Evolution Soccer 2014 for Europe. Repair services for the system in Japan ended on September 7th, 2018. Wow. Alright, let's do the history. Though Sony kept details of the PlayStation 2's development secret, work on the console began around the time that the original PlayStation was released in late 1994. Insiders stated that it was developed in the U.S. West Coast uh, by former members of Argonaut Software. That's interesting. Uh, By 1997, worded leaked to the press that the console would have backward compatibility with the original PlayStation, a built-in DVD player, and internet connectivity. Sony announced a PlayStation 2 on March 1st, 1999. The video game console was positioned as a competitor to Sega's Dreamcast, the first 6th generation console to be released, although ultimately the main rivals of the PS2 were Nintendo's GameCube and Microsoft's Xbox. The Dreamcast itself launched very successfully in North America later that year, selling over 500,000 units within two weeks. Soon after the Dreamcast's North American launch, Sony unveiled the PlayStation 2 at the Tokyo Game Show on September 20th, 1999. Sony showed fully playable demos of upcoming PlayStation 2 games, including Gran Turismo 2000, later released as Gran Turismo 3 A-Spec, and Tekken Tag Tournament, which shows the consoles, graphic abilities, and power. The PS2 was launched in March of 2000 in Japan, October in North America, and November in Europe. Sales of the console, games, and accessories pulled in $250 million on the first day, beating the $97 million made on the first day, day of the Dreamcast. Directly after its release, it was difficult to find PS2 units on retailer shelves due to manufacturing delays. I remember this, but I will talk about that at the end of this. (laughs) Another option was purchasing the console online through auction websites such as eBay, where people paid over $1,000 for the console. Yes, they did. Um, The PS2 initially sold well, partly on the basis of the strength of the PlayStation brand and the console's backward compatibility, selling over 980,000 units in Japan by March 5th of 2000, one day after launch. That's what you call a success, folks for sure. This allowed the PS2 to tap into the large install base established by the PlayStation, another major selling point over the competition. Later, Sony added new development kits for game developers and more PS2 units for consumers. The PS2's built-in functionality also expanded its audience beyond the gamer, as its debut pricing was the same or less than a standalone DVD player. This made the console a low-cost entry into the home theater market, which is true. The success of the PS2 at the end of 2000 caused Sega problems both financially and competitively, and Sega announced the discontinuation of the Dreamcast in March 2001, just 18 months after its successful Western launch. Despite the Dreamcast still receiving support through 2001, the PS2 remained the only 6th generation console for over 6 months before it faced new competition from new rivals, Nintendo's GameCube and Microsoft's Xbox. Many analysts predicted a close three-way matchup among the three consoles. The Xbox had the most powerful hardware, while the GameCube was the least expensive console, and Nintendo changed its policy to encourage third-party developers. A little too, little, too, little too late for Nintendo there. They should have done that before. Uh, let's see. While the PlayStation 2 theoretically had the weakest specifications of the three, it had a head start due to its installed base uh, uh, plus strong developer commitment, as well as built-in DVD player. The Xbox required an adapter, while the GameCube lacked support entirely. Uh, while the PlayStation 2's initial lineup games lineup was considered mediocre, this changed during 2001. 2001- the 2001 holiday season, with the release of several blockbuster games that maintained the PS2's sales momentum and held off its newer rivals. Sony countered the Xbox by temporarily securing PS2 exclusives for highly anticipated games such as the Grand Theft Auto series and Metal Gear Solid 2 Sons of Liberty. Sony cut the price of the console in May 2002 from $299 US to $199 in North America, making it the same price as the GameCube and $100 less than the Xbox. It also planned to cut the price in Japan around that time. It cut the price twice in Japan in 2003. Uh, In 2006, Sony cut the cost of the console in anticipation of the release of the PlayStation 3. Sony, like Sega, unlike Sega with its Dreamcast, originally placed little emphasis on online gaming during its first few years, although that changed with the upon the launch of the online capable Xbox. Coinciding with the release of Xbox Live, Sony released the PlayStation Network adapter in late 2002 with several online first-party titles released alongside it, such as Socom US Navy Seals to de- demonstrate its active support for internet play also advertised heavily, and its online model had the support of Electronic Arts. EA did not offer online Xbox titles until 2004. Although Sony and Nintendo both started out late, and although both followed a decentralized model of online gaming where the responsibility is up to the developer to provide the servers, Sony's moves made online gaming a major selling point for the PS2. In September 2004, in time for the launch of Grand Theft Auto San Andreas, Sony revealed a newer, slimmer PS2. In preparation for the launch of the new models, Sony stopped making the older models to let the distribution channel empty its stock of the units. After an apparent manufacturing issue, Sony reportedly underestimated demand, caused some initial slowdown in producing the new unit caused in part by shortages between the time the old units were cleared out and the new units were ready. The issue was compounded in Britain when a Russian oil tanker became stuck in the Suez Canal, blocking a ship from China carrying PS2s bound for the UK. During one week in November, British sales totaled 6,000 units compared to 70,000 units a few weeks prior. There were shortages in more than 1,700 stores in North America on the day before Christmas. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's a bad That's bad timing. In 2010, Sony introduced a TV with a built-in PlayStation 2. Okay, let's go down to the reception. Okay. Initial reviews in 2000 of the PlayStation 2 acc- acclaimed the console, with reviewers com- commending its hardware and graphics capabilities, its ability to play DVDs, and the sister's backwards compatibility with games and hardware for the original PlayStation early points of criticism included the lack of online support at the time its inclusion of only two controller ports and systems price at launch compared to the dreamcast in 2000 pc magazine in 2001 called the the console outstanding praising its noteworthy components such as the emotion engine cpu 32 megabytes of ram support for iee 1394 branded as iLink by sony and firewire by apple and the console's two USB ports while criticizing its expensive games, quote-unquote, and its support for only two controllers without the multi-tap accessory. Later reviews, especially after the launch of the competing GameCube and Xbox systems, continue to praise the PlayStation 2's large game library and DVD playback while routinely criticizing the PlayStation 2's lesser graphics performance compared to the newer systems and its rudimentary online service when compared to Xbox Live. In 2002, CNET rated the console 7.3 out of 10, calling it a safe bet despite not being, quote-unquote, the newest or most powerful. Noting that the console, quote, yields in-game graphics with more jagged edges, end quote. Uh, CNET also criticized the DVD playback functionality, claiming the console's video quality was passable. And the playback controls were rudimentary, re- recommending users to purchase a mo- remote control. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> Using your controller to play DVDs was interesting. Uh, let's see, the console's two controller ports and expensiveness of its memory cards were also a point of criticism. Yes, they were. Until third-party developers made their made uh, made um memory cards. Yeah, it was kind of tough. <laughs> you know. Let's continue. The Slim model of the PlayStation 2 received positive reviews, especially for its incredibly small size and built-in networking. The Slim console's requirement for a separate power adapter was often criticized, while the top-loading disk drive was often noted as being far less likely to break compared to the tray-loading drive of the original model. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I have the Slim model, and yeah, I've had that thing for years, and it just performs. Every time I turn it on and load something up, it just goes... You know, fantastic reliability. Okay, let's go with sales. Demand for the PlayStation 2 remained strong throughout much of its lifespan, selling over 1.4 million units in Japan by March 31st of 2000. Over 10.6 million units were sold worldwide by March 31st, 2001. In 2005, the PlayStation 2 became the fastest game console to reach 100 million units shipped, accomplishing the feat within 5 years and 9 months from its launch, and this was surpassed 4 years later when the Nintendo DS reached 100 million units shipped in 4 years and 5 months from its launch. By July of 2009, the system had sold 138.8 million units worldwide, with 51 million of those units sold in PAL regions. Overall, over 155 million PlayStation units were sold worldwide by March 31, 2012, the year Sony officially stopped supplying updated sales numbers of the system. My personal experiences with the system. (laughs) Well, it's my favorite system by far. I mean, I could go on and on about it, but we'll just go with my notes. (laughs) You know, I could wax poetic for quite some time. Um. I remember people losing their minds when the system first came out paying $1,500 or more to get it because there was a shortage at Christmas of 2000. Um, I remember I came up to Michigan to visit my friends and I was staying with them uh, just before Christmas, I think. It was either just after or just before. I can't remember exactly. It was 20 years ago. Um, But I remember uh, we would... I would look at the paper, and there were advertisements for people who had PlayStation 2s, and they were charging a thousand dollars, fifteen hundred dollars. You know, I think there was one that had two thousand dollars. And the and the weird thing was, and the sad thing was, is that people were paying that money to get these systems, even though it was. The problem with the problem with the PlayStation, at least in my opinion, was that the first model of it, you know, it had to, you know, it ha, it was really really fragile. You could burn out a PlayStation 2 just by playing DVD DVDs on it. I mean, I still have the first PlayStation. I still have the first two PlayStation 2s I bought. Neither of them work. They're in my closet. Um, and I have a PlayStation 2 Slim sitting on you know, in my entertainment center in my bedroom, um, and yeah, that was the thing. If it, it was a common, it was common knowledge that if you used a PlayStation 2 for playing DVDs as well as playing games on it, you would shorten its lifespan significantly. And yeah, it's true. My first PlayStation 2 only lasted me about a year. Um, let's see. To continue my notes. Um, my first real experience with the system was when I was visiting friends and future roommates in the spring or summer of 2001. They had gotten a PS2 and several games, and the game that we would all compete at was WWE SmackDown Know Your Role. We would make our own wrestlers and go through the storyline to build them up, then we would have matches against each other. It was tons of fun. Uh, the game that would really get us going, though, because we were all D&D players was Baldur's Gate Dark Alliance. Um uh, I think I'm going to cover that in uh, Are You Experienced? (laughs) I think I kind of have to. It's one of my favorite action RPGs of all time. Um, It was fun to team up and play the game, and we were all serious D&D players. Um, Despite the criticism that the games were expensive, uh, they weren't really that expensive. I think the only time you really started seeing high prices was more of the games that were adapted from um popular japanese games um i think the average price for a playstation 2 game was like 49.99 or something like that which was not really that expensive considering um you know if even if you go back one generation back to the uh playstation 1 and those games were only averaging about 40 dollars so 10 dollar increase per generation is about right, actually. Um, let's see. Uh, yeah, even brand new, they weren't that expensive, so by the time I moved with them in uh, October 2002, they would built up quite a collection. Uh, shortly after I moved in, I bought my own PS2, like I said, which I promptly killed because I was not only playing games on it, but I was running movies off of it as well, which was deadly to the first generation of PS2s. Uh, I think they fixed that in the next... Um, the next go-round of models that Sony was sending out, but I'm not 100% sure. I think that's what happened. Uh, I bought another one in the summer of 2003, and that one lasted me about five or six years until it died, too. Uh, shortly after that, I bought a PS2 Slim, and it still works to this day. I think I've had that PS2 Slim for Actually, I take that back. I bought a second PS Slim, so... Okay, so that's a total of three. <laughs> I think that's how it went. No, 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 that's right. No, I think I bought my PS2 Slim in, like, 2008 or something like that, 2009. um, And I've had that thing for ten years, and it still works. You know, I love it. That thing just every time i turn it on it just sits there until i say you know i want to play a ps2 game and then i just you know pop the top throw in a game close it turn it on and it just works and that's awesome um there's a reason why this system is the best selling home console of all time in my opinion the games um this is something that has been lost since the ps4 and the xbox one came out And probably still is the same now that the PS5 and the Xbox One X have come out. Um, And I think it really started with... It might have even started with the PS3 and Xbox 360. Um, It wasn't exclusivity that made the PS2 and gave it its legendary status. It was the inclusivity. The system had nearly 4,000 titles made for it during, during its run, and that library made it the system to have. I mean sure the xbox was a more powerful system and the gamecube was cheaper but in the end if you don't have the games to back up the system it's going to fail like the dreamcast did i mean basically the ps2 comes out in 2000 and shortly after that the dreamcast you know sega just folds on the dreamcast you know which is a shame because they made really good games for the dreamcast but yeah the ps2 just like i said um in episode 31 when i was talking about the ps1 this the ps1 made sony a juggernaut and the ps2 made it almost unbeatable i mean sure the xbox had prettier games because their system was better you know had better specifications and the gamecube was cheaper but yeah i mean the ps2 still still beat them out and it wasn't even really close you know i mean just the fact that this system is sold over 150 million units through its lifespan, just is that's the proof in the pudding right there. I still play games on it to this day, and last count I have about 50 to 65 titles for it. I haven't counted lately. Um, if I want the games bad enough, I will buy them off of uh, Amazon and other reputable retailers. Truth be told, if my PS2 Slim died tomorrow, I'd go right out and buy another one if I could find it the system is iconic the games were awesome and it has more than earned its place at the summit of the video gaming mountain top the home video game mountain top let's say so yeah that's the PlayStation 2 um if you have any thoughts questions i mean god only knows i'm pretty sure about 75 to 80% of my audience as small as it is um have owned a PlayStation 2 because the um, uh, Spotify breaks down uh, the uh, my listeners by age group, and by far the largest age group is, like, what was it? Uh, was it 30 to 49 or something like that? I'd have to look at the statistics. But, yeah, it's people around my age. <laughs> you know, oh, those people who were there back in the 70s and 80s and so forth. But, yeah, I mean, if you owned a PS2, hey... You know, let me know what you thought. Arcade Addict Brian at Gmail com. Okay, and that's episode thirty-three. Uh, let's see, looking ahead to episode thirty-four, I have another top ten coming. Oh, let's see, what else do I've got? Of course, our experience and time for some strategy, and I think, and I have an on-the-road segment as well. So, this is Brian saying, "Have fun out there." Good gaming, stay safe, stay smart, au revoir. This has been the Confessions of an Arcade Addict Podcast. All music has been provided by Kevin McLeod. You can find his music at incompetech.com. You can contact the show by email at arcadeaddictbrian@gmail.com, at gmail.com or you can call and leave a voicemail at 734-743-2433. Until next time, you have been listening to the Confessions of the Arcade Addict podcast. See you then.